think it'd be wonderful, but there's rather too many verses in the Bible. Um, so it took me a while to, to, to fix on just a few, but I've fixed on Hebrews 12, just the first three verses in Hebrews 12. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, I think it's 1210. Put me right if I'm wrong. Page 1210. And I've given the title to this, What's Going to Stop You? What's going to stop you? And I hope you'll uh, forgive us if actually, forgive me, if actually um, we continue the whole sort of killy theme because nearly all my illustrations are from the mountain. Um, But I promise you we'll get it over with this week and we'll be on to something new next week. So bear with us. So Hebrews 12 and just the first three verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What's going to stop you? What's going to stop you? This is an absolutely key passage in the New Testament on keeping going in the faith. And it's interesting, isn't it, how often spiritual perseverance is likened to physical endurance. And here we have it again. And a picture in these first few verses is one of a, of a giant amphitheater with a great cloud of witnesses all watching on as we're running the race marked out for us. But the problem is, these Hebrews were in danger of not getting to the finishing line. They were in danger of chucking in the towel before the race was ended. Now, why was that? What was going wrong in this early house church? Because the strange thing is, they weren't facing the intense persecution of the earlier years. The persecution is talked about in the past tense, not the present. But still we're told they're in danger of growing weary and losing heart. Verse 3. So the question is, what makes people start well and then give up? What's going to stop you and me from reaching the finishing line? What makes us stop short of God's best for our life? Because if we're honest, we've all probably faced a season or a situation in our lives when we've just wanted to stop, give up. Just take the easy way out. Give up on a, on a task or a calling, on a relationship or a promise or, or even faith itself. Just give up. And here in Hebrews, the author, uh, and by the way, no one seems to really know who wrote this book. He was obviously very educated. He was very astute about all the ways of Judaism. The only thing we do know about him was that he was a tea drinker. He brews. Um, But in these, thank you, thank you. Not my joke. But in these few verses, the author gives us four reasons why people attempted to give up, to stop believing. And you may not feel you need this right now, but you never know, you may well need it by Tuesday. So listen up. Here they are, four reasons. Firstly, we lose our frame of reference. 
A lot of people are tempted to stop because they lose their frame of reference. Verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And of course, as soon as you see the word therefore in the Bible, you've got to find out what it's there for. And it's telling you to look back. And in this case, it's referring back to the great cloud of witnesses listed in chapter 11, often called the, the Hall of Fame. The men and women in the Old Testament who learned often through tough, tough circumstances to live by faith. And do you see, just look back at it, do you see how virtually every paragraph in that chapter begins with those words, by faith? Because without faith, verse 6, it's impossible to please God. Men and women all commended for their faith, we're told, verse 39. And isn't it so typical? I just find it so typical of God that in the middle of this illustrious list, you know, in amongst the likes of Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Joseph and Moses, you know, all the greats, who do we find? Who do we find? We find Rahab, the prostitute, verse 31, commended for her faith. And that tells us not to count anyone out. So here we have this great cloud of witnesses. And we immediately think of, don't we, a sort of gigantic Olympic-sized stadium with them all cheering us on up on the stands. And we maybe imagine ourselves, you know, taking a lap of honor, waving to the crowd when we do anything of significance, like maybe climbing a mountain for a good cause. But, you know, on a closer look, that's not the point of this verse. That's not the point. The point the author of the Hebrews is making is not that they're watching us, but we're watching them. They're not witnesses of my life. They're witnesses to my life. They went before. They've done it, and so can we. And you know, on the Killy climb, um, you may be surprised to hear this, but one key topic of conversation was, in fact, Cheryl Cole. Um, some of you may ask why. Um, some of you, others of you may remember that a number of other sort of minor celebrities uh, climbed Killy for comic relief a few years ago, and Cheryl was among them. And we had her personal guide, Jackson, with us. So you can imagine uh, we were all swarming around him like bees in a honeypot. You say, okay, so tell us, what, what's she like? What does she wear? You know, how does she cope? How, what, did she have just one tent or three? Three, apparently. Um, but the main thought among us was, If they can do it, so can we. They motivated us. On a more serious note, I found that following the often heartbreaking stories of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church around the world, you know, following their their stories every day through this last Lent as we did as a church, that, that reminded me, it reminded us all, didn't it, of our true frame of reference Because we so desperately need a godly, not a worldly, but a godly frame of reference. A reference that tells us the truth about who we are. That reminds us we're not where we used to be. We're not where we deserve to be. And we're certainly not what we're going to be. We've got a cloud of witnesses telling us, willing us on. They made it, so can we. And we can be so easily tempted to give up when we lose our frame of reference. Number two, we stop because we we get weighed down or tripped up. 
Verse 1 goes on to say, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. It happens so easily, doesn't it, to each one of us without even trying. It's as though the writer knows how life gets to us. Another version says, let us throw off any weight, strip off anything that hinders. We need to get rid of anything, anything that's stopping us pursuing our goal. Uh, We had to be pretty ruthless when we packed our bags for the mountain. We were allowed no more than 15 kilos each. Uh, sounds a lot, but actually when you're packing for a mountain, uh, seven days on a mountain, you want all, as many home comforts as you can possibly pack in that bag. And the bags were all carefully weighed before we started the climb. Anything over, and we had to get rid of some of the stuff. That is, all of us apart from Nick, whose bag, and I tell you, I was right behind him, I saw it, whose bag weighed in at 18 kilos. And he insisted that the scales lied. Now, I thought it was only women that used that phrase. Apparently not. But the author here says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles us. Now, that tells us something, doesn't it? It it must mean there are some things that hinder me that I wouldn't necessarily label as sins. But I still need to get rid of them if they're stopping me from running the race. Every Christian, every Christian knows that if they're carrying obvious sins, uh, such as greed or, or, or untruthfulness or sexual immorality, every Christian knows that it, you know, that's wrong and we need to get rid of them. But what if the weight you're carrying is anxiety? What if the weight you're carrying is, is, is insecurity? What if the weight you're carrying is someone you won't forgive? Doesn't society tell us that the way to be free is to do whatever you feel, whatever feels good to you personally? But the writer to the Hebrews, of the Hebrews, has looked down that tunnel, and he's seen that that's that's not freedom. That's never going to free us. That's bondage. And that stuff is going to wrap itself around us and trip us up time after time after time. And he's telling us we have a choice. We, We can either cut ourselves free, throw off the weights, Or we can keep run, run, running until we collapse under the weight that Jesus died to take from us. We stop because we fail to throw off the stuff that hinders us and the sin that entangles us. Thirdly, we stop because we lose sight of the object of our focus. Verse 1 ends with the charge to run with perseverance. Run with perseverance, the race marked out for you. Sounds like a lot of hard work to me. You know, whatever you do, just keep going, pushing on through. Don't give up. And I'm sure nearly all of us have experienced something of that in our lives. When life gets tough and there seems to be no way out, We just put our heads down and we push through with grim determination. And on the mountain, I can tell you, there were many times when we were just looking down at the ground, counting every step, simply willing our feet to move. But the author to the Hebrews doesn't leave us there. He says, verse 2, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter 
of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. It's not just about the race. It's about the one behind it all. He's the one who set us off on the race. And he's the one who's going to greet us at the end of it. It's all about him. And whether we're on Killy or in Clapham, we can look at our feet for too long and forget to lift our eyes to the hills and remember where our true help comes from. As Dave read in that psalm, Psalm 121, at the beginning of the service. And for all of us, you know, there were key moments on that mountain when we needed not, not just physical strength, physical endurance. We needed to fix our eyes on him again. And for me, one key moment was, was halfway up on summit night. Um, I was suddenly gripped by just awful altitude sickness, and I, I just felt sick. I felt disorientated. I felt as if I, I was not in control of my mind or my body. Nothing was making sense anymore. And uh, my Emily, my daughter Emily, who was just behind me all the way, she literally at times had to, had, to, had to keep me from falling down the mountain. I was just so disorientated. And at one point she realized I was in a particularly bad way and we had two guides with us. And she said to them, look, could we pray? And before I knew it, bless those dear men, those two lovely men simply laid hands on me and started singing over me. And I don't know what they were singing. I don't know how long it went on for, but it just sounded like a glorious, the most beautiful heavenly choir to me. And my focus was restored. Jesus has to be the object of our focus. Jesus is the hope of our endurance. Jesus, we're told, is the author and perfecter of our faith. And you know, it's a really interesting thing I found that those two words, author and perfecter, that combination of those two words isn't used anywhere else in the Bible about anyone else. In fact, it's not used anywhere, even in the literature of this time period. Why? Because Jesus is in a class of his own. There's no one else who can be called the author and perfecter. Only Jesus has the right to be called both those things. He's the author, he's the writer of the whole of creation from the beginning of time. He's the writer of each one of our lives. And he's the only one who can be trusted for the outcome, the completion. You know, he looks at your life and mine and he says, not only was I the one who formed you from your mother's womb, but I was also the one, I am also the one who will shape your life to what it's meant to be. So if I cut something out of the rough draft... I'm just creating the more perfect version that I want the world to see. He's the author and perfecter. He's the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. Or as I recently heard someone say, the A and the Z and the LMNOP. He's everything. He's the author and the finisher. He who began a good work in us, he says he will be faithful to complete it. If we don't stop, if we don't give up. And why don't we stop? Because we fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. End of verse 2. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. Now let me ask you, what do you think was that joy? What was that joy? Well, surely it was the salvation of our souls. 
That was the joy set before him. And you know, in the light of that, it wouldn't be inaccurate for each of us to say, each one of us to say, I was the joy set before Jesus. I, Christine, was the joy set before Jesus. I, Tommy, was the joy set before Jesus. I was the joy set before him. Just say that under your breath. Say it to yourself. Put your name there. I, I was the joy set before him. And next time we think about giving up, we need to think about how he didn't give up. He endured the cross. He scorned its shame. And for all of that, he's now sat, we're told, at the right hand of the throne of God himself. And then we're told, verse 3, consider him. Think about him. Think about him who endured such opposition so that you and I will not grow weary or lose heart. How could we give up? How could we grow weary or lose heart when he's done all of that for us? Just think about it. I was the joy set before him that made him endure the agony and shame of the cross. And now he is the joy set before me. So don't grow weary or lose heart. Don't give up. Because the final reason, you know, people often give up is they fail to realize just how close they are to victory. They fail to realize how close they are to victory. Don't give up because Jesus has blazed a trail ahead of us and is eagerly waiting for us. You know, as we were climbing the very last part of that mountain, I mean, seven hours sheer incline up a a shale cliff, a bit like, I don't know if any of you passed the Peabody Estate and seen that mountain uh, of uh, of rock and dirt. We were climbing up this shale cliff, often taking two steps up and about three back down, slipping and sliding in total darkness with only a little head torch for each of us to light the way. And I would, I was near the back of the queue, um, and we were in single file going up this mountain. I would occasionally look up and see this little trail of single lights ahead of me, just winding their way up the mountainside. And at times, it was difficult to tell where the lights ended and the stars, uh, I mean, the amazingly glorious, I can't tell you how the stars looked on that mountainside. We could see, it felt like we could see them all, the whole universe, brilliantly shining out in that darkness, where the lights ended and the stars began. Just little pinpricks of light up the mountain, showing me the way, giving me hope that the end was in sight. But Jesus, we're told, has blazed a trail ahead of us. Not just little pinpricks of light, not just little markers to help us find the way. He has blazed a trail through sin and sickness and despair and failure and death itself. And he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God in anticipation of our homecoming. And I couldn't help but turn to the very last verse in that little book of Jude, just before Revelation, where it says this, just seemed to sort of encapsulate it all. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, 
To the only God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. And let's say amen to that, shall we? Amen.